Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of technology and information security professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider sponsoring one of our podcasts. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our weekly podcasts, which feature news, analysis, and discussion of the most important cybersecurity topics of the day. Or you can commission a custom podcast to highlight your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your web browser to securityledger.com slash sponsor. Hello, this is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 198, let's face it, 2020 was a terrible year. The COVID virus has killed almost 2 million people globally and caused trillions of dollars in economic damage. At the same time, natural disasters like wildfires, floods, and hurricanes ravaged the United States, Central America, Australia, and parts of Asia. But trying times have a way of peeling back the curtain and allowing us to see our world with new eyes. Maybe that's why this very bad year has led to some really good conversations and insights here on the Security Ledger podcast. To wrap up 2020, I went back through the 35 episodes that we aired this year and selected four that stuck out and, in my mind, captured the 2020 zeitgeist. As we delved into issues as diverse as the security implications of machine learning, to cyber threats to election systems and connected vehicles. I'm excerpting some of those conversations now in a special year-end edition of the podcast. To start off, I pulled a March interview from episode 180 that I did with the security luminary Gary McGraw, a noted entrepreneur, author, and now co-founder of the Berryville Institute of Machine Learning. In this interview, Gary and I talk about research that he and the other members of the Berryville Institute did on the cyber risks of machine learning technologies. I'm Gary McGraw. I'm the co-founder of the Berryville Institute of Machine Learning. Gary, welcome. And I think it's welcome back to the Security Ledger podcast because I think we've had you on before. But today we're talking about your latest endeavor, which is uh, the Berryville Institute Machine Learning. Tell us about the Berryville Institute of Machine Learning and uh, how this got started. Well, it's sort of a sad story. So I will admit that I tried to retire and I was extremely bad at retirement. So last January, when I retired from doing software security work professionally for Synopsys, I decided to take a look at machine learning, which I'd worked in 25 years ago to see what kind of progress had been made. Because you see all this incredible coverage about now machines can play Go, now they can read everything, now they can translate all your speech into, you know, understand what you're saying. And I wondered how much of that was hype and how much was real and what progress had actually been made in 25 years. And I was talking to a guy who's now in the Berryville Institute with me at a technical advisory board for Intrepid. And that guy's been working in machine learning directly for the last five years or so. So we decided to put together a research group and just look into the field and read some scientific papers and see what progress has been made. What we found out is not surprising. Computers are way, way faster and data sets are way bigger. But as we were reading and learning that really it was just comp- computers have, have gotten better and, and the algorithms are pretty much the same. What, what we found is that nobody's really paying attention to security. 
And so it reminded me a lot, the security coverage that there is, what little there is, was about attacks. For example, there's the famous story of putting tape on a stop sign and making the machine believe that it's a speed limit 45 sign, which would be hugely problematic if it was your Tesla that was doing that, for example. Or a machine learning algorithm that's supposed to distinguish between wolves and dogs and it does a great job but it turns out that it's not actually distinguishing between wolves and dogs it's just a snow detector so if there's snow in the picture it says wolf so these sorts of things get a lot of coverage in the press as security problems especially with the nomenclature adversarial input and that's good but it reminded me a lot of software security in the early days where we were breaking this piece of software and that piece of software and there wasn't any coverage about what we should do about this so we decided we would do a risk analysis. And that's what we did. It took us a year. And when we're talking about machine learning systems, um, what are we, how would you define that? And what are we talking about? So you're talking about basically an algorithm that learns to associate input with output. And so you might think about something that classifies pictures. So the machine is trained up to look at pictures and say whether or not there's a ball in the picture. So you show it you know, tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of pictures. And each time there's a ball, you say ball and it learns to say ball when it sees a ball. And when you show it a picture without a ball, you say no ball. And so it learns to classify through statistical association whether or not there's a ball. So it's not learning by being coded a set of rules in the old way of building a computer program. Instead, it's a neural network that has weights and thresholds and you feed back um, whether it gets it right or wrong. You feed back through the network and adjust the weights and thresholds in such a way that the network will will end up doing the, the task that you want to train it to do. That's a very, very simple example, but by and large, that's how these things work. So you're building an associative map. Machine learning security is not about using machine learning to do security. Machine learning security is about the security of machine learning. And it's kind of like building security in versus like sprinkling magic crypto fairy dust everywhere. I love magical crypto fairy dust. So you have these 78 um, different types of machine learning risks. But before that, there's a sort of taxonomy of known attacks on machine learning that you put together, input manipulation, data manipulation, model manipulation, and so on. As you guys surveyed out there, what is the state of play right now in terms of attacking uh, machine learning? So for those different um, types of attacks, uh, are there any that are actually very prevalent or preferred right now from those that you identified? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, the number one risk and the number one attack are pretty much the same. And that's this idea of adversarial examples. Because of the way that these things do their statistical association, you can often make a mask that is imperceptible to a human and put that over a picture and then have it categorized incorrectly. So for example, you might have something that's supposed to identify tanks and you figure out a way to put some noise into the input so that it thinks that all tanks are cats and says, cat, cat, everything's fine. It's just a bunch of cats coming over the border, you know, no problem. So that kind of attack has gotten a lot of coverage for many reasons. One is it's kind of input that people understand because it's visual. And some people have worked on text-based adversarial input. But basically what you're doing when you're manipulating adversarial input is 
you're fooling the machine learning system by providing malicious input with really tiny perturbations that a human can't see, but that the machine is like, whoa, that's totally a cat, you know? And so there's a disproportionately large amount of coverage for that stuff, but it's very much real. I mean, it's got a lot of sex appeal. You can put pictures in your articles, whatever. So almost all of the oxygen in the room in machine learning security is taken up by risk number one, adversarial examples, which is not necessarily terrible, but there are 77 other risks we should think about. Talk about them. What are some of those risks, um, particularly ones that you think are um, particularly salient or uh, worrying? Yeah, well, let me just march through the top 10 and then you can pick two or three out of the top 10 and we can talk more about them. Oh, perfect. You're giving me choice. I like that. Yeah. Number two, it's the, this is how you, you know, feed kids lunch too. You're like, you want a peanut butter sandwich or? <laughs> <laughs> so number two is data poisoning. Number three is online system manipulation. Number four is transfer learning. Number five is data confidentiality. Number six is data trustworthiness. Number seven is reproducibility. Number eight is overfitting. Number nine is encoding integrity. And number 10 is output integrity. So the one that jumped out at me, because it's one that I can grasp and that seems like it would probably be a big issue, would be data integrity. So feeding machine learning algorithms just with bad data. So first of all, like how is that different from adversarial examples? Aren't adversarial examples just a type of bad data or maybe there's a difference? Yeah, that's a really good question. Very insightful. The reason that there's a difference is because when it comes to data poisoning, we're thinking about the data that are used to train the system up in the first place. So let me give you an example. There's a machine learning system that's supposed to help people decide whether or not to hire someone. So it watches videos of candidates asking, answering questions and then says, yeah, hire that person or no, don't hire that person. And it makes the quote unquote decision by having, you know, been exposed to a bunch of old hiring decisions from before from a corporation. So you feed in all your data about what people said in interviews and whether or not you hired them and whether they worked out and the machine decides whether or not somebody should be given a job offer. Now, the problem that is evident in the data poisoning risk is this. If the data that you're using from your history are racist or xenophobic or sexist, and you train the system to basically do what we've been doing for the last decade, you're going to end up with a machine learning system that's a racist, sexist, xenophobe. That's a perfect example of data poisoning, accidental data poisoning. It turns out that the data that we were using was crappy because our corporation has racist, xenophobic, sexist tendencies that we were not aware of until we trained a machine to be like us. And then we were like, uh oh, that look at that. That's bad. Look what drops out of this data. And so we have to be yeah. super cognizant of that. Now, let's get serious about this. Imagine that you're using data from a public source to train a machine to do something important. Like identify hotspots for virus spread in on a map. Now, if those data are public and they can be tampered with by an adversary, then what will happen is the machine will do the association, but it'll have the wrong sort of data that it's doing the association on and it'll just do the wrong thing because you train it on poisoned data. That's a much more serious and important example of that category of risk. Another one you guys mentioned, you, uh, uh, Barryville Institute of Machine Learning called out, which I think is, is 
is uh, one that is going to be very problematic is this notion of reproducibility. And, and as we lean more on machine learning algorithms to do important work, whether it's um, read x-rays or educate the fate of a accused criminal sitting in the courtroom, how does the algorithm reach that decision? And is that decision reproducible in some way in the way that in science we expect experiments to be reproducible if they're accurate? Yeah, I'm sorry to say this, but machine learning involves a whole lot of kludging and a whole lot of, (laughs) well, we sort of got it to work and it works. And you read the literature, like even the science literature that's been peer reviewed and they're like, well, we set all the hyperparameters empirically. And what that really means is we ran six and one of them worked. So we used the one that worked and here's the numbers. They're like, we set this to four. And you're like, why? What does four mean? Like, what the hell are you talking about? And it turns out that there's a lot of incredibly sloppy kind of work uh, that's being used now. The results are good because the machines do what they're supposed to do. And so everybody's excited. They're like, yay, it does the thing, except for we're not sure why, but we're not going to talk about that part. And, you know, if somebody else comes along and they're like, hey, we're going to make our thing do that too. Hey, how'd you do that? If you read the papers, there's often not enough information to figure that out. Or it's being held in a proprietary way. That's bad because in the normal case, these algorithms are inscrutable. We don't know how they come to the decisions they come to. We know it's based on statistical association between data sets that we provided, but we don't know what the representation is. We don't know what the edges and the boundaries are. We don't know how people could possibly make it misbehave through adversarial input. All of those things are pretty murky. And that is all what we kind of stick under the reproducibility thing. Now, if you produce a machine that's doing important stuff and you're not sure why it does it, and then one day it does the wrong thing, like (laughs) you can't just say in the court, oh, well, you know, it's a machine. Yeah, the machine did it. And we're not sure why. It's like, well, who owns that machine? Who trained that machine up? Like, you know, coming coming soon to a courtroom near you. You know, we are entering a, an era where we're relying on machines to do, you know, make many more of these decisions from healthcare decisions to uh, decisions affecting somebody's kind of freedom and civil liberties, potentially, you know, the sort of automated judge type applications. And yet, as you're saying, we often can't fully explain in terms humans can understand how a particular decision was reached by an app by a machine learning algorithm. Well, this is right. And it is a huge problem. But guess what? It's also a problem for people. If you say, hey, how come you did that to a five-year-old? They're like, oh, well, you know, I I don't know. But somehow it's worse when it's a machine. So we are making a lot of progress. We're going to use this technology Um, We need to do what we can to manage those risks. We can't just throw all this stuff away and say, oh, two neighbors to use. But we do have to just go in with our eyes open. So what we did at BIML is meant to be used by people who are either taking existing machine learning technology and putting it into their own system or designing new machine learning algorithms and systems themselves. So engineers, architects, technologists, people who are thinking about using this stuff need to read our work and think about building security in for machine learning. Gary McGraw, founder of the Berryville Institute of Machine Learning and a failed retiree. Uh, thanks so much for coming on and speaking to us again on the Security Ledger podcast. My pleasure, Paul. Nice chatting with you. 
As winter turned to spring this year, the COVID virus morphed from something happening over there to a force that was upending life here at home. As ICUs in places like New York City rapidly filled in February and March, the U.S. faced a shortage of respirators for critically ill patients. As they often do, members of the hacking community stepped up and rose to the challenge. In our second segment, I pulled on an interview from episode 182 with Tremel Hudson of Lower Layer Labs. In this conversation, Tremel and I talk about Project Airbrake, his work to jailbreak CPAP machines, and how an NSA hacking tool helped make this inexpensive at-home medical equipment suitable as makeshift respirators for critically ill COVID patients. I'm Charmel Hudson, currently the Director of Special Projects with Lower Layer Labs in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Uh, I do independent security uh, research into hardware and firmware, typically on uh, laptops and servers. I'm very interested in both how do we build more secure systems, as well as how do we use open source and things like uh, Core Boot and Linux Boot to uh, take better control of the systems that, that we own. Obviously, globally, we're all dealing with the same thing, which is the uh, coronavirus, COVID-19. And um, there is a great demand for uh, respirator machines. You did some really interesting research and development on modifying a very common piece of at-home medical equipment, these uh, CPAP machines, for use as respirators. The project's called Airbrake. Talk about what, uh, how that came about. So the project is called Airbrake, and I need to make an important clarification that this is for allowing clinicians to be able to use uh, CPAP and BiPAP machines uh, in sort of an off-label use as uh, ventilators. This is not the sort of thing that you would want to use on your own, that, you know, this you would need to do this under the supervision of a clinician. There's also additional hardware and things that need to be uh, installed, like the viral filters, so that you don't end up spraying virus all over. Uh, just to start, also, uh, CPAP and BiPAP, those are those are two different terms. Um, just briefly, uh, kind of what are these devices used for? So they're typically used to treat uh, sleep apnea and some other sleep disorders. Um, so a CPAP machine maintains a continuous positive airway pressure that helps uh, keep your... Uh, keeps the user's airways open while they're sleeping so that they can get enough oxygen. And a BiPAP machine does two levels, the, the Bi. So it detects when the user is uh, exhaling and will reduce the pressure to make it easier for them to exhale. And typically the uh, CPAP machines are sell for $300 to $600 and the BiPAP machines are in the $1,000 or more range. And then there's some, some fancier versions as well that add ventilator-like functionality. The BiPAP ST machine uh, has something that can detect if the user hasn't taken a breath in some period of time, and will actually try to force them to, to breathe. And that particular machine, the BiPAP ST, has been approved by uh, Mount Sinai for use as a improvised uh, ventilator with addition of uh, viral filters and some other hardware. And the FDA has granted an emergency uh, use authorization for them to, to use that essentially off-label. I am not an expert in this area. In fact, I, I really had not even looked at CPAP machines and uh, these sleep disorders until about two weeks ago. With when uh, some clinicians in on the East Coast contacted me because they, they wanted to see if it's possible to take these low-end machines and adapt them to have similar functionality to the, the higher-end BiPAP STs that they were already uh, using in uh, some clinics. What they realized 
is that the low-end machines with some extensions in the firmware could probably serve very similar functions as the uh, as the higher-end machines. So they, they reached out to me to ask if it's if I could uh, spend some time uh, digging through the firmware and uh, try to figure out how to add some extra functionality to it. Can we just talk mechanically about like a CPAP or BiPAP machine and a ventilator? Like under the hood, if you look at the mechanics of it, are they basically the same thing? So a CPAP machine doesn't necessarily need all of the sensors. Uh, it really just needs a closed loop pressure control uh, to maintain that continuous pressure. A BiPAP machine needs a sensor to be able to detect the exhalation so that it can reduce its uh, its output pressure. And a ventilator needs a timer to be able to do breath for the for the user who, who might be sedated, um, as well as typically ventilators will have hookups to uh, the hospital alarm systems and, and other things. Right. So they're kind of interfaces to uh, nurse station management software platforms and things like that. What Folks realized is that even the fairly low-end CPAP machines have a exhaust pressure, excuse me, uh, EPR, uh, exhale pressure reduction uh, function that can be turned on, which means that even the low-end ones had that sort of back pressure sensor to be able to detect the the patient's uh, uh, exhale cycle. Adding the time functionality is just a, a matter of programming. So their assumption was that you know a, a CPAP a CPAP machine with a EPR functionality could, through a simple matter of programming, be functionally equivalent uh, to the uh, the BiPAP ST or the ventilators that they were using and could help reduce uh, the, the pressure for, for those uh, ventilators in, in their hospital. Let's start talk about kind of how you got going with this. So I, I'm guessing you, you bought some of these machines or had them shipped to you and and, um, and where did you go from there? Uh, so. It's two Fridays ago. Um, uh, <laughs> We're not talking about very much time. No, no, this yeah. is just, uh, it, it's been a, it, it was a long, you know, uh, two weeks of 18 hour days. But, um, yeah, one of them uh, was drop shipped to me and uh, I made sure it worked and then pulled it apart and started probing the chips on board uh, to figure out how, what, what, systems uh, were running, what sort of uh, security protections they might have. And together with uh, some other uh, researchers, we, we sort of mapped out the high-level block diagram of the, the CPAP machine. And then once I got a firmware dump, uh, I loaded it into uh, Ghidra and basically spent the next week and a half just staring at hex dumps, uh, making sense of the, the control flow through the uh, device so that we could understand how the software is structured and what modifications we would need to make to add the features that the clinicians had requested. Very interesting and kind of amazing that you're able to do it in that short a time period. How were you able to kind of make sense of that? Again, given that you you don't obviously have the source code, you're, you're really just looking at a hexadecimal dump of the compiled binary. Like, how do you do that? <laughs> how do you make sense of it? There's a really wonderful tool that the uh, the NSA released a year ago called Aghidra that's a open source uh, reverse engineering tool. You can load a large binary into it, tell it what the CPU architecture is, and then it it's sort of an interactive disassembler, uh, as well as something sort of like a decompiler. It helps you uh, make sense of the of the binary image, and you can then you can ask it questions like, what other functions call this function? And you can then map out uh, data types and say, you know, I think this is a this is an array of, uh, of floats or this is an array of shorts. And it can help you make sense of you know, all those ones and zeros and the, and the hex values. And 
In this case, uh, the device uses a off-the-shelf uh, CPU, an STM32 uh, microcontroller. So we can get a full data sheet and uh, reference manual for that CPU. It's an ARM core inside. So uh, Ghidra already knows how to disassemble and decompile those sorts of um, things. And based on strings in the binary, we were able to identify that it is using the UC uh, slash OS dash two kind of microkernel. And there are older versions of that available online that you can you can look through the source code. The they also are using the the EM win uh, sort of GUI uh, toolkit for doing the user interface. And that's a closed source program as well, but there are headers available and uh, reference manual for it. So once you identify you know, that this is probably talking to the LCD controller, and you can sort of work your way up from there to mapping out how does it create uh, GUI elements on the screen? How does it move through the uh, the menuing system and so on? And, and that then starts to give you a lot of insight into uh, the rest of the code. That if you say, well, this is displaying something called max pressure and sets this variable when you turn the knob, and this other function reads that and then copies it out to some PWM register, you can probably figure out that that's what's uh, controlling the motor speed. So sort of you're tracing the flow of data uh, through the system and a combination of static analysis with tools like Ghidra and then runtime analysis with something called OpenOCD that's a JTAG uh, debugger that you can hook up to GDB and then that allows you to single step through the, through the firmware execution. So you can set a breakpoint where you say, well, I think this function is you know, called when, when the user turns the, the knob. And so you set a breakpoint there, and then you turn the knob, and you see, does that breakpoint get triggered? And you can sort of, again, work your way through the code fairly quickly to, uh, to, to get a good picture of it. And, and so once you've kind of mapped out the flow of the firmware and how this device works, you, you then need to um, modify it. Were you adding a feature, or were you kind of um, enhancing a feature that already existed? So initially, the plan was to uh, add a new feature, what's called a pressure control ventilator mode, where it does a just a, a, a rhythmic cycle of a high pressure inhale, a low pressure exhale, high pressure inhale, low pressure exhale. So to, in order to do that, we had to map out what uh, registers we had to write or what ver- global variables we had to set that controlled the output pressure. We had to figure out where the timer was so that we could uh, have a, a a timed thing, and then we had to figure out how to schedule a callback in the in their real time OS so that uh, our handler would get called, and then find some free space in the ROM or in the Flash uh, to to uh, binary patch it with this function, and we we got that working pretty quickly. I was able to draw on a previous project that I worked on um, about ten years ago called a Magic Lantern that was building a an open source runtime for Canon SLR cameras. And that has very similar sort of goals where I wanted to be able to change the functionality uh, and some of the functions of, of the camera. And the easiest way to do that was to reverse engineer the firmware and figure out how to patch uh, Canon's ROM to add my own functions and then be able to schedule those to be called uh, in response to like the user interface controls. Uh, we got that working fairly quickly. And then the clinicians uh, in, in conjunction with the research lab uh, hooked it up to a, a test lung and experimental setup. And there's a brief write-up about that on, on the airbreak.dev uh, website about you know what tests they ran 
to try to validate uh, that mode. We uh, talk and write about um, uh, right to repair and and so on quite a bit on this podcast and, and elsewhere. How do how do you see that larger argument about you know repair maintenance uh, access to things like schematics and diagnostic codes and so on as as fitting into this? I certainly miss the era of com- when every computer came with a, a schematic and wiring diagrams and you know timing diagrams for for all of the different bits of hardware. Um, it, it's uh, it's unfortunate how much of that is hidden behind NDAs and service agreements, and a lot of it I think has to do also with market segmentation. Making hardware is expensive, but having different software builds for different feature sets is very, very inexpensive. And that sort of brings us to the, you know, the, the, the more interesting part of what we found in, in the Airbrake project. So after you know, we, we built the, the, the pressure-controlled ventilator mode, that's sort of the homebrew mod that did that, and that worked. But I noticed that there were also a bunch of strings in the firmware for uh, different models and different control modes. And with a bit of uh, additional reverse engineering, I found that by flipping some of the configuration bits in the ROM, uh, the machine would start up and uh, would unlock all of these other modes that were uh, only available on the much, much more expensive uh, devices from this manufacturer. And based on looking through the FCC filings and uh, you know photos that uh, folks have provided of the insides of the other hardware, there's not uh, a difference in the in the main boards and the and the devices. They're differentiated just by the software loads. Even though the, pr- the price difference may be hundreds or, or thousands of dollars. Exactly, exactly. And that sort of market segmentation, you know, Tesla does this as well, that no matter which battery power, uh, battery pack you buy, it's they all have the same cells in there, but your software limited to the range. Or whether or not you have autopilot on your Tesla, you know, it, there's no new hardware. It's purely a software uh, change. So those sorts of market segmentation uh, strategies are fundamentally incompatible with a right to repair and sort of an open uh, design. You know, if the only thing that prevents you from unlocking a $4,000 autopilot feature is knowing that you have to set some bit uh, somewhere in a configuration file, it suddenly becomes um, much, much harder to justify the price. So I'd be remiss if I didn't say. So what what has become of of Airbrake? And I mean, I know you just really really went, went public with it a couple of days ago. But um, is there any reason to believe that um, these some of these modified CPAP and BiPAP machines may be uh, deployed as uh, ventilators? I'm hoping, as mentioned, I'm really hoping that the manufacturer uh, releases a a firmware update to enable this, so that. Uh, hospitals don't need to uh, do this via via the, the homebrew route. Um, however, uh, I have heard from multiple um, uh, clinical groups that are interested in exploring it. The uh, uh, the, the Mount Sinai protocols uh, showed that uh, hospitals can come up with their own off-label uses and uh, get them past the FDA. I would expect that if if there's no motion from the from the manufacturer. That we might see, you know, some some developments along those fronts. Really interesting, and and uh, Tremel, thank you so much for the work that you did. I mean, it sounds like it was a, a huge investment of your time and energy, and uh, and obviously for for a very worthy cause. It feels it's really nice to uh, to use my powers for good for once. <laughs> 
Indeed, indeed. Crossover, crossover, Dremel. As I mentioned, I'm hoping that there's that the CPAP users community can take advantage of, of the Airbrake code tree. And you know, we do have a, a Slack set up, airbrake-dev.slack.com, and also the, all the sources available from airbrake.dev. And I'm really hoping that, yeah, once once the ventilator crisis is passed, that the, uh, the uh, sleep therapy community is able to take this and run with it, similar to the way that the Magic Lantern community has, has grown you so much over the past 10 years. Uh, Termal, thanks so much for coming on our podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for, uh, for the questions and for the chance to, to talk about it. One of the big cybersecurity themes of 2020 were the security implications of changes forced on us by the COVID pandemic. Chief among them, the rapid shift to remote work and the embrace of technologies such as the Zoom platform that enable remote work and remote meetings. For our third segment in this special end-of-year podcast, I return to episode 183 and my interview with security researcher Patrick Wardle, a principal security researcher at the firm Jamf. In April, Patrick made headlines for disclosing a zero-day vulnerability in the Zoom client, one that could have been used by an attacker to escalate their privileges on compromised machines. That earned him a conversation with Zoom's CEO that took place, to Wardle's dismay, via the Zoom platform. In this conversation, Patrick and I talk about that strange encounter. Patrick Wardle, uh, I am a principal security researcher at Jam. Patrick, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you, Paul. Stoked to uh, talk nerdy with you about uh, all things Mac OS related. <laughs> Patrick, you're a researcher at the company Jam. Tell us a little bit about what Jam does. Yeah, so Jamf is a Mac enterprise management solution that you know helps enterprise healthcare education systems manage their their Apple devices. Um, so you were in the news recently, very recently, in fact, for some research you did on the Zoom platform. Talk to us about uh, the the work you did on Zoom, and given that everybody is now using Zoom to as a lifeline to the civilized world, what should we know about the uh, security of the Zoom platform? Yeah, so Zoom was interesting. I think it was a great example of a product that really prioritized usability, user friendliness uh, versus security and, and privacy. And in a way, you almost can't blame Zoom, right? They're kind of the Silicon Valley startup. And really, the, you know, when you're. Are they a Silicon Valley startup, though, Patrick? Really? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> um, but uh, in that context, taking VC money, let's just go with that, um, you know, the goal is obviously grow your user base. And the way you do that is by creating a user-friendly product that's, that's easy to use, right? Security is not a selling point, at least initially. We then had this uh, worldwide pandemic and Zoom's popularity skyrocketed. Um, and, you know, as we mentioned, anytime a product becomes more popular, there's going to be hackers, security researchers uh, looking at. So one of my friends uh, on Twitter kind of made some observations about the Zoom installer that were kind of odd. And, you know, I was already getting invites for Zoom meetings with various customers, uh, you know, in parallel. I said, okay, well, I should take a quick look at this product that I'm installing on my computer to make sure I'm not opening up an attack vector. Um, and also, hey, you know, it's becoming really popular. Again, its priorities and focus seem to be more on usability versus security. So there's probably going to be some stuff. So I started poking around, and within a few minutes, I just found a few a few flaws. So I looked specifically at the Mac client. Uh, my research was focused specifically on the installer, the, the, the native client for Mac OS. 
So the first bug I found, and this is kind of a well-known attack vector, uh, basically what happens during the install or an upgrade process, uh, the Zoom would invoke this uh, deprecated Apple API to perform privilege actions. And this API is well-known to be riddled with security flaws. It's not recommended to be used. And basically, since they were using it uh, in a specific way, incorrectly, it opened up a local privilege escalation vulnerability. So in a nutshell, the installer will run a script out of a temporary directory that was writable, readable by any user on the system, but it would execute that with root privileges. So this means a local unprivileged attacker or a piece of malware that was already on your system that wanted to elevate their privileges to root, kind of, you know, super user, the highest level of privileges, they could just uh, piggyback along this Zoom installer upgrade, inject some malicious commands into this temp script, uh, again, since it was writable by anybody, even with basic privileges, and then these commands would be executed uh, as root. So a very kind of nice uh, logic flaw in... in and, and great, because Zoom is going to be on just pretty much any any uh, endpoint system that you that you happen to own. There's a really good chance that, that the Zoom client's going to be on there. Yeah, exactly. So definitely uh, an attack vector there. The other bug was kind of more interesting, and I think actually maybe more impactful, at least from a, a privacy point of view. So looking at the way that Zoom was designed, um, modern apps on iOS can opt into something called the hardened runtime, which is a compiler level security mechanism that Apple makes available to third-party developers. So kudos to Apple. It's a very powerful uh, protection, and it basically protects applications from malicious code uh, injecting or subverting the application. And that's important because on recent versions of Mac OS, things like accessing the mic or the webcam require explicit approval from the user. So obviously, once an application has been granted that access, you don't want another piece of malicious code to be able to inject or subvert that application to piggyback off that user-approved access. So the issue was Zoom had a specific exception that opened them up to that exact attack. So the attack scenario would be a piece of malware somehow gets onto a Mac system. The user has Zoom installed. It's able to access the mic and the webcam because obviously that's what Zoom is used for. The malware would equally like to access those devices. Uh, we see a lot of Mac malware, for example, trying to turn on the webcam to spy on users or some more advanced cyber espionage type Mac malware trying to turn on the microphone to basically turn the device into a room capture audio device. Again, imagine your uh, spy agency, you've hacked the IP's laptop, you turn on the mic, you can hear everything that's being said. Like that's a very, very appealing uh, capability. But on Mac OS, as we mentioned, there are now these prerequisites where the user has to approve. So with this attack, uh, a piece of malware or a local attacker, again, could leverage Zoom's access to the mic and the webcam because of the way Zoom was designed and inject some mal malicious code into Zoom application, which would then inherit Zoom's access, meaning then that malware could access the mic or the webcam to listen in and record Zoom sessions or at arbitrary times execute Zoom in a background invisible state, the operating system would still see its Zoom wanting to access the mic and the webcam, even though there's malicious code that's been injected into it. And so that gave the avenue for attackers or malware then the way to access the mic or the webcam uh, with no alerts to the user. So again, a kind of interesting attack scenario, especially from uh, a privacy point of view. You know, one question, because obviously there's been a lot written about Zoom vulnerabilities, and obviously, as you know, 
this is a this is a kind of dynamic that exists within information security, which is you know information security researchers like yourself are very interested in platforms that everybody's using, and so like you said, as Zoom, I think had a 10 x increase in users from like twenty million you know to two hundred million uh, in Q one. You know people people got interested and curious. That said. Is it your expectation that the types of things you found in Zoom are, are not present in Zoom competitor applications? Or are some of these kind of you know fast and loose practices really designed to make these things very easy to set up and deploy, um, are they likely to be exist in one form or another in you know your WebEx and GoToMeeting and and you know log me in and some of these other platforms that basically do the same thing that Zoom does? Yeah, so if you look at usability and security, I always like to kind of place them on this imaginary line, this kind of linear scale, and and usually those are opposite ends. And so if you have if you look at uh, competing products or Zoom specifically, it's really what was prioritized. Not to say that they are inherently at conflict with each other, but generally the easier something is to use, the less secure it is now. Uh, and it's funny because and Zoom, I, we should say, is really easy to use. <laughs> it's funny because to kind of circle back to the Zoom issues and vulnerabilities, uh, Zoom did a really good job fixing those within a day. So kudos to them. They also kind of had their own, uh, you know, Bill Gates memo moment where they said, hey, we're focusing all our engineering researches na- resources now specifically on security and privacy, not new features. Amazing. Uh, they also brought in, you know, external security researchers. Uh, they're going to expand their bug bounty program. Almost do a complete 180 and prioritize, prioritize security and privacy. So, get back to your question about you know competitors. I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the other more startupy type uh, solutions or competitors would have similar flaws or issues. Because again, their general priorities are just increasing the user base and making incredible, incredibly usable product. Uh, whereas if you look at something from you know Microsoft, I believe you know Teams or you know maybe even Google Hangouts, those kind of things. Those are products that are 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 created by I would I would say more mature companies, companies that have been in this game for a long time and realize the impact of security and also have the teams and the security minded developers. Because uh, you know writing code and writing secure code are two different things, right? It's like you have to have kind of this hacker mindset while you're writing the code or have a team within within the organization that can red team or analyze the application, do source code audits, reviews. I'm sure previously this isn't something that Zoom uh, invested in because that's a very costly endeavor and also does slow down uh, getting to market, which again, for a startup, like getting to market fast is, you know, how you... Billions. Yeah, this is this is not a problem, as I'm sure you know, not a problem unique to Zoom, or this is a problem that is endemic in startup culture, right? Hundred percent. And so I think this is just a great example. Okay, so if you get a Zoom invite now, uh, what do you do? I accept. Uh, it's funny. I actually got a uh, a message, an email from the CEO of Zoom uh, who wanted to talk about some of these the research <laughs> I did, and I was like, "Can we do a Signal chat?" You know, because Signal's like, you know, you're secure. And he just sent me back a Zoom link, and I was like, ooh, power move. Um, <laughs> but, you know, of course. So I, I was, again, this was kind of a, a very appreciative. He reached out. We talked about some of their security improvements. Uh, so, again, it's really good to see them really, I think, turning a corner and now focusing uh, on security and privacy. But to answer your question, 
Um, you know, I think Zoom did a great job fixing the vulnerabilities. I think for everyday use, it's fine. Uh, you know, so I will get on Zoom meetings. I would say, though, if you're like a, a government organization or an enterprise that's talking about very sensitive information, you know, maybe use a product that's from a more mature company because even though Zoom has, I think, done a great job fixing a lot of their bugs, I think there's some tech deck that they have uh, incurred just by not focusing on um, security and privacy throughout. And the myriad of bugs that myself and these other security researchers found were very low-hanging fruit, let's say. They're, they're easier, easy bugs to find. It's very kind of surprising that they were almost there. So there's probably other bugs that will be found and Zoom will patch them quickly. I feel like Zoom's still kind of getting up to speed where hopefully a product may be from a company like Microsoft. And I haven't specifically looked at the Microsoft product, but more just saying like likely it was designed with maybe more security in mind. But, you know, for the average user, Zoom is, is great. And, you know, the virtual backgrounds are fun and it has great audio and video. And so, you know, go Zoom. Just set a password for your room so you don't get, you know, Zoom bombed or whatever. Final question is, I want to talk to you about uh, Objective-C. Um, that's C as in ICU, not uh, C as in the programming language C, uh, which is a organization that you started to kind of foster development around tooling and, and other stuff for Mac security researcher, uh, research. Talk a little bit about Objective-C. Yeah, so Objective-C is a project I'm very passionate about. Kind of has an interesting story how it all began. Uh, I get a call from one of my friends. Um, I'm, lucky, I'm lucky enough to live in, in Hawaii, and my friend was a surfboard shaper. And he's like, my Mac has got infected. It's got all these pop-ups. And this was kind of right at the beginning when I was getting into Mac research. So I was intrigued, went to his house, looked at his system. And yeah, he had all these pop-ups and alerts. Obviously, his system was infected. And I said, okay, if this was a Windows system, I would grab a sysinternals tool and specifically the one that shows me what's persistently installed because malware tries to persistently install itself. And then I just find that piece of malware adware and, and delete it. So I Googled router and it just wasn't a tool to do that on Mac OS. And I was like, that's, that's odd. That's surprising. So I told my friend, hey, you know, give me a little bit. I'll come back. You know, went home, spent about a day just putting together this basic script, Googled like how to persist on Mac and there was some research uh, based on that, wrote like kind of a, this Python script that I'm embarrassed about, but you know the, it would enumerate uh, persistent locations on your system and showed you what was installed there. Took it back to his house, and sure enough, it didn't cover the the source of the infection, which was uh, some adware. And you know, I, I I joked, I said, you know, you know, she's probably stopped going to these all, all these uh, shady adult websites because how do you know? Malware. Uh, so we were able to remove the adware. He gave me a great discount on a board he shaped for me. So I was super stoked. But that really opened my eyes to the fact that there was this lack of just, I would say, security products or security utilities for macOS. So what I kind of did is I began on this endeavor, just writing 100% uh, free, largely open source security tools, um, largely to protect my Mac systems, um, but then also to share with the community to foster uh, just awareness, so it's, you know, kind of sharing is, is caring. So uh, I've written a handful of tools from uh, free open source firewall to uh, this tool knock knock, which I just mentioned that shows, you know, shows what's persistently installed on your system. Another tool that is kind of neat is called do not disturb. Uh, it'll tell you if someone opens your laptop. Uh, the, <laughs> the inspiration I'm laughing because this is a hilarious but true story. Uh, I was in Moscow for a conference and I was traveling with uh, a laptop. I brought a burner laptop, which is kind of like a, you know, a laptop just used for travel. But I remember I, <laughs> I hopped on Tinder as one does in Moscow and I <laughs> 
beautiful Russian lady. And she was very like assertive. Like she messaged me first and said, you need to take me to this restaurant at 6.30 on Wednesday. And I was like, all right, when in Moscow, we go. And I remember at dinner, uh, I left my laptop in my hotel room and I'm talking with her and I was like, what do you do? And she's like, I work for the Russian government. And I was like, wow. She's like, I, you know, I'm in law. I train diplomats before they go to foreign countries for work. And I was like, wow. I was like, I, you know, appreciate your honesty. And, you know, so I assumed from the start that she was kind of shady, but I'm sitting there and I'm like, really? Okay. You used to work at the NSA. Wow. <laughs> what a coincidence. I work for the Russian government. Ugh. So I was like, okay, you know, this is how Russians build connections. You know, they, they build these personal relationships. And, and so, you know, I was very cautious and understood that. But at the same time, I was thinking, wow, my laptop's back at the hotel. <laughs> If someone wanted to get access to that, physical access is always the best way to gain access to a device. While I'm busy out at dinner, you know, they could be popping in the hotel room and I would have no way of doing. So kind of the inspiration for this do not disturb tool kind of plays off the do not disturb card you hang on your hotel room was from that, uh, that date in Moscow where I said, okay, I just want a utility that will alert me via my phone. Uh, you know, if someone opens my laptop to, you know, try a password attack or power it on to plug in a USB stick that has an exploit, I want it to, you know, basically in the background, send me alert on my phone so I can get alert if someone's messing with my laptop. Uh, so I haven't caught any Russian spies yet, but uh, I did get a I did get an email the other day. You know that somebody did try and get into your laptop, right? Like yeah, hundred percent. But that's why I take a photo. But you had a spies. lovely date. You had a lovely date, and I'm sure she was charming. Very yeah. memorable. So um, <laughs> hilarious, Patrick. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, big fan. So it's kind of awesome to, to hop on here and chat. Um, you know, I would be stoked to come back. Uh, I feel like we have lots more to talk about <laughs> in, the, in the future. We're always happy to have you on. And, uh, and absolutely, we'd love to have you back on talking again. And finally, while COVID and the ripple effects of the pandemic dominated the news in 2020, it isn't as if it was the only news. In the shadows of the pandemic, other critical issues continued to bubble. One of them was the increasing tension over the power held by large companies and technology firms. In our final segment, I return to a conversation I had with Asaf Harrell of Karumba Security in November. Harrell is one of the world's top experts in the security of connected vehicles. In this conversation, he and I talk about the state of vehicle cybersecurity what the biggest cyber risks are to connected cars, and we go deep on issues such as the right to repair and how industries like the automotive industry are trying to balance consumer rights and cybersecurity with privacy concerns. Asaf Farrell, I'm the chief scientist and one of the co-founders of uh, Caramba Security. Caramba Security is a company that is uh, focused on uh, IoT, uh, cybersecurity, IoT device cybersecurity. We offer uh, products and services to enhance the level of uh, cybersecurity of these uh, Internet of Things uh, devices. Okay, so Internet of Things device, that's a huge space uh, ranging from you know, huge pieces of equipment down to little, you know, webcams in your in your home, right? So, um, w- tell us just a little bit about Karambas technology and uh, the types of IoT companies you guys work with. So, I think the the question is uh, more towards uh, 
why would an IoT company even invest, uh, device company even invest in cybersecurity? And what we found, we found several sectors that where cybersecurity is critical, um, mainly because of several factors. One of them is that they actually uh, have some, you know, physical control of our lives. So it's so cybersecurity becomes part of the safety question. And you can think of uh, medical devices or uh, transportation, of course, like uh, vehicles and uh, cars and, and airplanes and uh, trains, etc. You can think of industrial uh, scenarios like, uh, you know, the electrical grid or a dam or a factory that is handling some uh, sensitive materials. And the last uh, settings where cybersecurity is uh, very important is standard enterprise. So where we have our computers and our smartphones, we also have devices. Think about uh, router and switches, think about IP cameras, uh, printers. All these devices can also be part of um, an enterprise. You know, it's, it's quite a shame that we call it standard enterprise attack, but we have so many of them. Uh, and, uh, and IoT devices are now pulled into this uh, battle as well. Another thing that I wanted to say is that many uh, sectors are also standardized and, and some of the standards uh, requires you know, stronger sa- uh, safety measures and cybersecurity is included. The automotive industry is a very good example, but other like medical and uh, medical sector and other sectors as well. And the third and maybe also interesting aspect is that sometimes it is a business competitive decision. And we do see companies that want to say our device is more secure than the competition, and therefore they will work with, uh, you know, cutting edge cybersecurity technology. Let's just talk about attacks. I mean, obviously, in, when we're talking about cars, the attack that comes to mind for most people is, of course, Miller and Valisek's, uh Jeep Cherokee hack uh, from 2015, I guess, um, that uh, you know Wired wrote about and kind of just blew up. I mean, it became a huge incident for a lot of reasons. We're talking about these ISO standards and stuff. I guess. We we know that Detroit and other automakers really uh, started to engage with cybersecurity after that little demonstration, as you would expect they would. Yes. Made some hires, you know, really um, retooled. You know, 2020, um, are those types of attacks uh, still possible? Does this new ISO standard uh, make it more or less likely that uh, those types of uh, attacks are going to be possible going forward? First of all, attacks are always possible. This is uh, something that is, um, you know, very unfortunate in our business. But, uh, but uh, you know, something that is a realization that all industries, and specific the automotive industry, has to understand. Because, again, when they're, uh, you know, writing down their failure mode analysis, they need to understand that some probability will always remain because of the innovative way that uh, researchers are uh, thinking and building new exploits that nobody thought about that were even possible that's that you know after i put that claim uh, aside um we can certainly build much more secure uh, uh, units specifically or especially when these units are they have input uh, from external uh, so external inputs like um like the head unit that you mentioned, and there are at least uh, three or three to seven such uh, uh, units in the car. And take, for instance, a, a new electric electric vehicle that has a charger. Right, you charge it with uh, in a charging station. This is an input. The charger 
talks with the um, charging ECU in the vehicle and they communicate over some protocol that is you know well agreed between all the OEMs and that protocol has some you know if it has vulnerability cybersecurity vulnerability i can uh, you know go to the, your vehicle overnight connect with some plug that i uh, created and take control of your car so and and it's very the battery is very close to the powertrain very close to the engine right so i will maybe i will be able to turn on uh, the engine just by being in the same domain the same the same network right. as the battery in the same way that you could walk up to a laptop that was unattended you know kind of stick a usb uh, stick into it load some malware onto it i mean this is you know obviously how stuxnet happened and and you know lots of attacks happen same thing with the vehicle so so 57 ecus this is this is what we we caramba think is the attack surface let's say 10 ecus something like that not the the 50 or one even 100 ecus that uh, that are actually in the vehicle because most of them don't have an interface, an external interface. Um, what they are doing, OEMs and tier ones, they are investing. And, uh, ECU, just define that for in case our listeners don't want an ECU. Is. Electronic control unit. So the so the units when you are going to the garage and they tell you I have to replace the unit, there are like uh, fifty of them or, or even more, seventy, depending on how new and how fancy is your car. It can be even uh, even uh, close to 100 different units in the car, but only less than 10 are actually externally connected, and therefore can be manipulated by uh, by attackers. And what we need, we need. So since these ECUs are now being rigidly developed under the ISO standard, uh, sooner than later, vehicles are going to be much more secure than what. Uh, uh, Miller and Valesek uh, uh, saw in front of them. And actually, in reality, most of the vehicles, even today, are more secure than what uh, Valesek and Miller saw. And I mean, new vehicles, and maybe we still have the legacy vehicles to bring up, you know, by, by means of means of uh, software update and things like that. And, and OEMs are working on that as well. I can tell you that some of the deals that Coramba is involved with, customers, I mean, is actually retrofitting vehicles that are already on the road because we now understand there are several vulnerabilities and we, we want to uh, make our cars, the cars that are actually on the road, we want to make them safer. So... So we are working on that, and we are working on new on new models that are much more. Uh... Are cyber software based cyber attacks on cars, whether they're physical, like you you know kind of plug the plug the dongle into the to the port, or like Miller and Valisek did, you know, a remote wireless. Are they a real threat today? I mean, we've seen d- proof of concept attacks from university researchers and security groups and independent researchers, but. Would you consider them actually a, a something that um, you know late model vehicle drivers should should actually be concerned about, whether it's um, you know a nation state or or just a ransomware game? So I think so. One one thing is that I think that uh, stealing a car is a big problem. Uh, it's not a nation state problem, but it's a na- yeah. it's a nationwide it's just, just run of the mill car theft. Yeah, it's a nationwide problem that uh, now hackers are very focused on. Um, how to steal a car. It's a lot of money. Uh, there, are, there is a lot of money there, so why not? We have a lot of experience in other industries and sectors to tell you what is what should be selected, and, and some of them didn't select. And this is, by the way, part of the problem is the four, five years 
uh, gap because when you make the decision in 2015, but the car is out in 2020, we, computers are you know so much more. So just just breaking encryption, basically, just cracking keys. Yes. And, and so I can tell you that to... some OEMs are are uh, are working, for instance, on um, homomorphic encryption and on the on an. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the days where RSA will not be secure anymore. It's the standard RSA that guards everything that we do, right? But they have to think 10, That's 20... Quantum type yeah, quantum, quantum encryption. And they have to think 10, 15, 20 years ahead. So their advanced uh, research groups are working on that already, exactly because they have to live in the future or they will die. So it's not, it's not, a, it's not a, um, a decision. It's a, it's a business decision. Um, so, so you and I recently ended up, but we're, we're in a meetup, uh, in a, in a kind of, um, discussion, online discussion with the Boston network users group, BNUG, which is a very old and respected, um, kind of, uh, network administrator, IT user group here in Boston that now meets via meetup. And we were there on opposite sides of a, a debate on a, a ballot question that voters in Massachusetts are going to vote on on November 3rd, question one, which was an expansion of the automo- the state's automobile right to repair law to include telematics. I was there with this group, Secure Repairs, I set up to kind of uh, get the security professionals to support digital right to repair broadly. And we're out in favor of question one. And you were there kind of in your capacity as expert on automobile cybersecurity to really raise some concerns you had about the wording of the the ballot question. Talk about your thoughts on question one. And then let's talk a little bit about sort of this, this larger issue of, you know, right to repair. So, so first of all, I want to talk generally about the right to repair. I think I think that it's beautiful. I think that it's beautiful that uh, that in in the U.S. I'm putting that quote on. Yeah, website. sure, <laughs> sure. I think that it's beautiful that in the U.S. every dealership can has the right, uh, you know, to to the diagnostic information and can repair can repair a car. I think that it's one of the things that make America so great that. Um, you know, we, 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 we maintain, we protect the ability or capability of the small business to, to, you know, to stay and operate and be, you know, make profits. And, and, and this is something that is very fundamental in the American, American way of thinking and America. And, 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 you know, and, and let me, and let me just add <laughs> that Americans once again have Massachusetts to thank yeah. For that right to repair, yeah. just like Lexington and Concord, just like they can thank us for the revolution, <laughs> yeah, and, and saying goodbye to Great Britain. Well, yeah. they have to thank us for the right to repair because there is no federal right to repair. Yes. It, it only exists because of the Massachusetts law. Yes. It's a, it's actually hangs by a fairly thin thread. But but anyway, go ahead. Sorry. I want to say another thing. I want to say that the OEMs that we are working with in in the states, most of them are from Michigan, but also. You know they are spreaded around uh, different states. They are also Americans. <laughs> they are also patriots, and they also want to take their car to the local dealership, and they understand that, and 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 they don't fight it in that sense. In the sense that, you know, we should, we sh- you know, and they even when 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 they try to explain their business model for us, they they don't do it a lot, but when they do, they explain that dealerships is a different and separate business, and sometimes it's even franchise. So I'm saying that just to 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 you know we are, we we are, we are uh, 
we we explain that we think that that the voters should vote no. And I just want to say that it's not because we think the right to repair is bad. The right to repair is beautiful, really. I think that the wording was so. The wording was not. I'm sure that some cybersecurity experts review the wordings. I'm sure that they didn't do it without any consultancy. But what we identified in the wording as the ability to control the car with specific in-vehicle commands, standardized and unauthorized, so that the OEMs cannot authorize anybody to send from you know sending these commands. This is too wide of a, of a way into a vehicle in terms of cybersecurity. The vehicle is not built to protect against these um, type of commands very well. And, and I think that if you go back to my explanations of how, to, how do they protect the vehicle, you'll, you'll see the, 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 the explanation, the reasons. The OEMs are very focused on the ECUs that are externally connected. Because what they understand, they understand the attack will start from there and then it will find its way into the internal network. And in the internal network, they have, they have some means of separation between networks by, by a gateway and other measures like, uh, like authentication of, of messages and things like that. But what we're afraid of is that cybersecurity within the vehicle is not as strong as it is on the external interfaces. So what we are giving now the attackers, we are giving them the right not to repair, the right to attack. We are giving them a way into the vehicle to send commands in a standardized way, in an unauthorized way, which means that their first step into the vehicle just became so much more easy than you know the standard 2020 or 2021 vehicle before that uh, amendment. You know that that is that is the concern of the of the vehicle makers. Um, of course, you know the 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 history of this is, you know, automaker. You know, voters passed a, a ballot initiative back in 2012 regarding basically physical access via the ODP ODB port uh, to the diagnostic information. And the car makers made pretty much the same argument then. It was, you know, it's dangerous, uh, this data, you know, not everybody should have access to it. It's very sensitive. The operation of the cars are so sophisticated these days. And it was the same damn argument, right? Yeah, so I... (laughs) But so I guess guess my question is, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people, the Boston Globe just came out with an endorsement of yes on one um, with kind of an asterisk that I think is probably a fair asterisk, which is there's probably more work though. This is, first of all, an issue. And I said this in the the meeting we were in. It's probably not a great issue to put before voters because it is... it is an extremely complicated question. Yeah, and that is very about, difficult to vote no against because, again, as I said, the right to repair is beautiful. Right. And uh, right, yeah. And but it but but you know how modern car repair works and you know di- telematic systems and repair and maintenance data. This is these are fairly you know, for most people are not familiar with these types of terms or they don't really know much about how their car works or gets repaired or anything. So it's it's a, it's a tricky issue to put before voters. And it, of course, it only went before voters because, you know, lawmakers in Massachusetts refused to take any action on it in any way. Um, but, are, but in theory, this is kind of why you elect people and send them to, you know, in, in, in Massachusetts, you know, Beacon Hill is to, you know, do the research and the homework and, and think up the smart 
way to do it, right? But that that didn't happen. So it, it may be the case that that changes need to be made uh, to this law to, to to address the issues that that have been raised. My issue and and kind of what I've said and and whenever I've been asked, you know, are there are there cybersecurity risks to to connected cars? My answer is always absolutely. You know, <laughs> no argument. Sure, no argument. Yeah. yeah. Internet, you know, and 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 Karamba actually put out a, a, a white paper on the on the question one, and I, I think what you you make a point, which is a great point, which is you know if you add you connect anything to the internet, you're increasing the attack surface, and I I know you know that, and and one of the interesting questions is just how how um how rich this the surface of of these vehicles are they they there are so many sensors and so much data i think the the figure is like 25 gigabytes in, at, per hour of operation for for a modern connected vehicle or something few, like that a few gigas no, i don't think the 25 a few, a few gigs yeah yeah still a lot. gigabytes still of, a lot. yeah yeah yes um th- that this is all kind of happening uh you know, kind of a little bit under the radar for people. I mean, you know, the, the, these capabilities are presented as features and conveniences, but my sense is consumers are not, as with their phone, maybe are not quite aware of like all the data that's being collected and transmitted to the automakers from these vehicles. And conversely, you know, the the risk, the cyber risk that goes along with that. Talk about, I mean, because you work with car makers, like how much data is being collected and and as they add new sensors and capabilities, is 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 there any kind of risk assessment that goes along with those basically product marketing decisions? Yeah. So uh, it, uh, this is really depends on the OEM and on the on the car model. Car, uh, on that sense, new newer and more um, advanced, uh, uh, fancier cars actually collect more and uh, want to give you more, you know, capabilities. Uh, there is still a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, development under the under the hood and, and and in the cloud. So the collecting is easy, but doing something with the data, this is still in the works, and are uh, figuring it figuring it uh, out. Here, the model would be the the value. Well, they hope that the value will not take five years because it's you know it's uh, it's uh, it becomes like a SaaS model where you can develop things uh, online and present it through the infotainment or through something which Tesla already yeah, does exactly. So everybody looks at the Tesla model and they want to repeat it and 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 you know whatever they can and they are working at least on the infrastructure level on bringing it bringing it uh, up. Some are more advanced than uh, the others. In terms of cyber risks, of course, if you connect something, there are risks, and of, and this is exactly why ISO and other standards and the OEMs themselves are uh, looking exactly at these ECUs, at, at these five, six, seven ECUs that are connected and are uh, um, sending information outside to enhance and have very strong and even you know as we talked about quantum encryption and even future-looking uh, cyber um, mitigations in place. Um, I think that in the context of the right to repair, the right to repair is right to demand that um, data uh, that can be used can be used by uh, repair shops. In this, you know, giga gigabits of data that is being uploaded to the, to the cloud and can be used for repair or will be used for repairs by the by the OEMs should be shared with uh, with the you know the local uh, the local repair shop. 
I, I don't think that there is a mistake here, and and probably the right to repair is right in the sense that things that that were right in 2012 are not the same in 2020, when uh, you know the cars are getting more and more, more, more and more sophisticated. Awesome! This has been such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to us on Security Ledger podcast. Sure, it was uh, honestly it was my pleasure as well, and. Uh, I hope the, you'll have me again sometimes in the future. and We absolutely will have you Thank again. Thank you very much. Guarantee it. Thanks so much for listening to this special year-end edition of the Security Ledger podcast. We hope you enjoyed our shows this year and look forward to bringing you more great cybersecurity conversations and discussion. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share news of the Security Ledger podcast with your friends. Get them to subscribe. Give us a good review on iTunes and mention us in your social media feed. Thanks so much. Have a great and happy and healthy new year.